Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and teach you how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624, or you can send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya, delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Let's see here. Tony from Toronto kicks us off this hour. Hey, Tony, welcome into the Ask Noah show. Hey, Noah. Uh, just calling, uh, wanted to know your advice, um, I got a customer of mine that is making a website currently and planning on storing sensitive information there, uh, medical records to be specific. Mm. And um, they got a, they have somebody else building the website, not me, but they asked me for my advice and how I would deploy this. And <clears throat> one of the things uh, I was advising them is to encrypt their tables. Now, I don't have too much experience with that, um, and I kind of wanted to see what you thought. I, I was planning on, like I looked up the MariaDB um, documentation, and I've been reading about encryption at rest. Um, I, I'm assuming that they're using HTTPS so that, you know, the transit should be fine, but um, what would you recommend, and would you recommend spinning it up on something like DigitalOcean over, because they're, they're, the customer is, um, you know, they're, they're scared about their privacy, so they're wondering them hosting it themselves uh, in, you know, in their office, can, you know, on their own internet connection versus maybe something like uh, AWS or DigitalOcean. I, I think the AWS or DigitalOcean would be better for performance, for geo-redundancy, for all that. But anyways, I wanted to get your take on both of those things. Okay, so let's a uh, couple things to break down there. So the f- first things first, if you can arrange it, anytime you're dealing with sensitive information and public-facing information, you want to separate those out as much as you can. Now, oftentimes, as probably is in the case in your client, The sensitive information, certain aspects of that have to be transmitted to the public-facing information. So, for example, patient comes in, wants a copy of their medical records, you want to provide them an opportunity to log in and and download that. And so the way that we have always kind of uh, set that up is the data, the EMR, would reside on server A, and the public-facing, what we call a patient portal anyway, when we set it up, resides on server B. And so that way, if, if let's, say the pa- let's say the actual EMR is emr.myclinic.com, and the, the public-facing server is mypatientportal.com. I'm just making these up, right? They don't exist. But if a, an attacker were to come to mypatientportal.com, they would have to not only compromise the mypatientportal.com, they would also have to... Uh, compromise the second portal or the second server. And so in that way, you have a little bit, uh, you, you put a little bit more distance between you and the attacker. So that's thing one. Now that can't always be accomplished, right? There are times where it's, that's just not functional or the software doesn't support it or whatever. Um, so then you start looking at encryption, which you're absolutely right to go through too. And um, yes, MaraDB doesn't, does support encryption. Uh, the, so, Okay, what's encrypted with MaraDB? Uh, the table spaces, the individual tables, and uh, 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 essentially, essentially the uh, the log files. 
Um, and I, if I remember right, and I'm, I'm kind of working off the back of my memory here, I think that's you have to go in and enable that separately, and I would. Um, here's the issue with encryption on, on, on running servers. Encryption for data at rest makes a lot of sense because if an attacker ever steals the hard drive, they can't access the information. The problem with using encryption on a running server is obviously for legitimate requests, the server has to be able to decrypt that information. Therefore, the key has to be available to the server to decrypt the information. And so it's it's kind of like, not exactly like, but kind of like when people talk about encrypting uh, ZFS or FreeNAS shares, right? You can do it and it does offer some mitigated protection, um, but the problem is at the end of the day, if the server is up and running and those keys are loaded into memory so that the server can do its job, you're not really thwarting anything if somebody gets access to the server because if they can steal the data, they could steal the keys um, because both have to reside on the server. And the only way to prevent that would be to store the key outside of the server and then every request, the key would have to be provided and if it was secured with a passphrase unlocked, which is totally impractical and defeats the purpose of having a server. Um, so I I agree with your... I agree with your uh, your methodology of saying, "Hey, let's encrypt the let's encrypt the data wherever possible." You should do that. Uh, just understand what the limits of those encryption, uh, what the limits of of that of that disk encryption is, and what it's going to do for you. More importantly, what it's not going to do for you. If somebody's able to get into the server, all the encryption in the world isn't going to help you. If that you know, if the if those keys are loaded into memory, does that kind of make sense? It absolutely does, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's good. Most EMR software, like, so we use OpenEMR, for example. Most EMR software is specifically designed uh, with security in mind from the standpoint of they know that in 2019 patients want access to their medical records. They know that in 2019 people expect to be able to download those, th- those things on a smart device or from their home computer. So to a certain degree, you're swimming, uh, you're swimming downstream. You're swimming with the, the rest of the folks that are interested in doing this, and, and everybody is kind of focused on this. So there's no harm in doing it. I wouldn't suggest you, you, you don't do it. You just, you would want, the things I would tell a client if we sat down and had this conversation, I would tell them, first of all, you make sure that we stay on top of uh, updates, uh, patches and updates. Second of all, we make sure that we have very good physical security, um, which we'll get to in a second. And then third of all, uh, you make sure that you have a qualified security professional like yourself to go through and actually set this stuff up for, uh, for the client because, if they're trying to do it themselves, or the worst case scenario, if they're hiring various different contractors for various different things, and you got a bunch of hands in the fire, and I, I won't go into details, but I will tell you that AltaSpeed Technologies just uh, about a year ago was involved um, with a company we were doing contract work with, and a couple other people, a couple other companies were doing contract work with it as well. And one of our techs said, "Hey, we see something kind of funny going on in the in the router logs here." And uh, we dug into it, and sure enough, somebody was uh, somebody was messing around. And what it ended up happening was because they had to facilitate so many different companies accessing their network, they started uh, they started opening stuff up right and left to make it so that they didn't have to approve all of these requests, and they did away with key files, and we went to simple passwords, all sorts. It was a whole chain of failures. Um, and we were able to go to them and say, hey, listen, you have some major, major problems. And so what you need to do is put one person, it doesn't have to be us, but put one person at the front of the horse and carriage and then let everybody else come through those doors. If you don't have time to maintain your security, so be it. Hire somebody to do it. We're offering. Here's why. Um, and they were receptive to that. And they said, yeah, 
by all means, go for it. We don't need a data breach. And so, you know, we, um, I like to say we earn business that way. Uh, as to your question as to where to host, this is where encryption does matter, right? Because what you're trying to prevent with disk encryption is where somebody has physical access to the machine and they go to physically remove a drive and they want to steal data, um, it's going to be encrypted. So in the case of can you store on DigitalOcean, first of all, DigitalOcean has very, very good physical security. In fact, I remember seeing a, a, a video that they did of their data center and they walked through some of their security pr- protocols. And I'm sure not all of them were in the video, but I was pretty impressed with their ability to control physical access to their data center. So I would say you're pretty safe there. Obviously, AWS is a safe bet, at least from a um, at least from a a public standpoint. Right. There's all sorts of different stuff that we get into, we start talking about privacy, NSA, all that crap. But um, for just a business decision, AWS is not a bad way to go. Disk encryption is going to help you there because if, for example, somebody tried to clone your uh, virtual disk drive, let's say there was some sort of, let's say there was some sort of security vulnerability that allowed uh, a person to copy the, uh, you know, either a data center tech or whoever it is, copies the, the you know, the, the, the hard disk image. Unless they get that machine actually running and are able to capture those keys, all of that data is then secure. Let's say, and this is a far more practical example, one of DigitalOcean servers crashes. Physical host crashes, and for whatever reason, their protocols aren't followed and those drives aren't destroyed properly like they should be. Again, you and your client's data are safe because it's encrypted. It's in a locked box. And if they have 50 million years and the entire computing power of the entire world, maybe they would be able to break into it. But um, as long as you're choosing a strong passphrase, you know, something like 64 characters, you're not going to have to deal with that. And so disk encryption is going to help you there. Uh, we have clinics that are hosted on DigitalOcean. We have clinics that are hosted on uh, um I don't, actually, I don't think we have any on AWS, but we certainly have clinics that are on DigitalOcean. We've done uh, in-house hosting, and we have done co-location, where we actually rent uh, space in a data center and put our server in and then lease VMs out to clinics to run their EMR. Okay. All right. Well, that definitely helps. Um, and is it all right if I ask one more thing? Yeah, you bet. Uh, what, would, what would be the best resource that you would say for... Um, for learning, I'm trying to learn like more how the internet works and how uh, uh, you know uh, different companies connect between each other. I know they use MGP, but that's pretty much the extent of where, where you know what I know. But what, is there a book or a resource that I can use to to learn more about that and how the internet works? I don't have a specific book or resource for you, but here's here's what I will tell you: the internet is nothing more than a very large network, and so. If you want to start to learn the underpinnings of the Internet, you can do it inside of your own house. One of the reasons that I have recommended Microtech routers not only on this show but to all of my clients is because the cost of entry is super low. $40 or less, you can buy a router on Amazon.com. And this is a router that is actually, in fact, used by many ISPs to route traffic. So you're using the same operating system, the same tools that uh, that major ISPs are using um, to, to, to do their traffic shaping, right? And if you wanted to go all the way, you could buy Cisco gear, and now you're using the exact same equipment that ISPs are using. And you can set these routers up in your house, and you can assign one router as 1.1.1.1, and you can assign another router as 2.2.2.2, and you've effectively created a small version of the internet. You have two individual networks that have two separate IP addresses that are not routable to each other. And, I mean, depending on what you said as a subnet mask, but let's just say for the sake of argument, 
that you, uh, you, you assign a single IP to each one of these routers, and you can start building and testing and understanding how things work. If I have the 1.1.1.1 network over here, and now I plug another consumer-grade Linksys router right into the LAN port, it's going to pull the public IP of you know 1.1.1.1, or whatever the DHCP pool for that network is, and you'll you'll be able to see like how how does traffic route and what rules do I have to create to get traffic to talk to one another. So if I know you know if I have a DNS entry of for example two dot two dot two dot two and I have the route set in there, it's going to work. That's about a thirty second thing to set up. Um, and understanding network at that level. Uh, is in my opinion is really beneficial to understanding how the internet works because the internet again is just a collection of smaller networks and the 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 problem with trying to understand that on the actual internet is you you run into all sorts of artificial limitations right so for example one of the things that I walk technicians through when they come with me our employment process is something like they they come in uh, they go through a basic training thing they go out with one of the technicians and kind of follow him around. And then I follow that technician around for about two weeks before he or she is allowed to go take on their own clients. And one of the things that I spend time doing with them is troubleshooting networks in what we call the sandbox, which is essentially our, uh, I guess, staged version of what I'm describing you to set up. And the advantage there is there are so everything, every concept that works on a local network will work on a, uh, on a, on a, on the internet, Right. All of those concepts are there, but we have artificial limitations in place. So, for example, certain ISPs will block certain ports or traffic to certain uh, to, to certain items. You'll also figure out that when you start going across subnets, things like broadcast traffic is dropped. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that, uh, you know, if you're going across a subnet, you know, DHCP isn't going to work and uh, and printer discovery isn't going to work. And so there's there, there's all sorts of things like that that you're able to ascertain by plugging a printer into one router and seeing if you can see it from the other. And that's something that's difficult to do on the internet because there are so many, on the real internet, because there are so many variables. But the principles are accurate, right? If you, and, that, and so just because Comcast, for example, blocks torrent traffic doesn't mean the internet doesn't support torrent traffic. It just means that Comcast blocks torrent traffic. And the same as, I think there was a, a deal with our local ISP where they started dropping the 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 uh, discovery protocol for the HP printers because people were plugging those things right into the internet and and they were getting live on the internet and bad things were happening so um, th- that's where I recommend starting um, and uh, and and if you want to go further than that um, if you're looking for something structured I'd recommend something like the CCNT cor- CCENT course Cisco did something very interesting the past couple of years they used to have what was called the CCNA. And it was a it was a very respectable certification. And what they did was they determined that two things were a problem. First of all, the test was too difficult for most entry level network technicians, and the test was too easy for anybody that was doing uh, anything serious with uh, with uh, with small to medium sized networks. And so they did a very wise thing, in my opinion. They split the test up, and they have CCNA parts one and two. And if you combine the CCNA parts one and two, you have what used to be the old CCNA certification, except it's much, much harder. Uh, and now it focuses on uh, heavily on IPv6. And they created an entirely new course called, or an entirely new certification called the CCENT, Entry Level Network Technician. And the CCENT is what will teach you uh, the very basics of, of, of building a network from the ground up. And of course, like I say, all of those concepts will translate to the internet. And so what you start with is square one. In fact, the only real benefit to the CCENT class from a employer perspective is subnetting. 
And uh, subnutting is, of course, that the, you know the sub mask underneath and or the or the slash that we put that basically defines which IP addresses relate to hosts and which IP addresses are outside the range of our network and need to be forwarded on somewhere else. Uh, and that's what that subnet mask tells us. And so being able to calculate and determine what subnet mask to use and how many IP addresses you want and what the advantage is. I mean, why don't we just put everything on one gigantic class A subnet? You'll figure those things out as you kind of step through those. And there used to be, I, I'm not sure if these exist anymore. I, I'll try and look into you uh, into this for you, Tony, and see if I can post something in the show notes and no promises that I'll be able to find it. But there used to be labs that you could rent, uh, Cisco labs. And so instead of having to purchase the routers yourself, you could... Excuse me, you could spend uh, like 35 bucks and for a week you would SSH into this controller and you'd have access to like 25 routers and 15 switches. And uh, it was a, it was a lab rack and you could you could you could get access to that and you could do all sorts of experimentation and and really hone your skills uh, testing on equipment that nobody cared if you broke and there was no penalty for uh, screwing around with it because that that was the idea, and so uh, that those are though I'm a very hands-on learner, and so I tend to recommend hands-on approaches to learning. But that would be my recommendation. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much, Noah. I appreciate the call. Yeah, appreciate having you. Eight fifty five four fifty Noah. It's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow dot com. You're on Ask Noah. Good evening. Thanks for hanging in there. Good evening. How are you? Pretty good. How are you doing? Uh, I'm okay. I was actually looking forward. I've been thinking since Saturday. I'm like, all right, I got to make sure Tuesday I get out of work at 7. I got to make sure I make it in time, so I'm glad I made it. You're a good person. You um, made it. I had. I did. Um, so first things first, I love the podcast. And whenever I'm at work, I listen to it while I'm on the computer. I had two questions for you. Um, I've had to uh, cut out uh, like random questions I don't need to ask you, but mm-hmm. two main ones. I used to use ParrotSec um, OS. I'm not sure if you've heard of ParrotSec. Uh, so basically, it's like Kali Linux, but uh, it can be used as a regular desktop for like regular use as well. That's cool. Um, yeah, it's not bad. So I had installed a couple months ago um, a couple issues, but I was able to resolve it for installing. I'm trying to install it now. Because I had an issue, I'm like, all right, let me just blow out the whole thing. I have a tendency of blowing out the hard drive and then starting from scratch again. So I tried to, I blew it out, um, tried to install it, went through the installer. Uh, the last step was to install Grub. And once that had installed, it rebooted the computer. I unplugged the flash drive. Now, the only concern is uh, I'm using a ThinkPad uh, T420. Uh, and I tried doing this on a T440, but basically it would... When it booted back up, it would show me the boot device options, and it wouldn't just boot into the OS, even mm. if I select each of the three options that were given to me. So I'm thinking maybe it's a grub issue. Yes. Now, I've seen a couple posts online, and the thing is, so when I go to ParrotSec, their, their wiki isn't the best. Like it says, soon coming, and it's not really helpful because they've been out for a while now. So they had one way, that was LVM. Uh, I should probably mention this earlier, but I'm using uh, LVM with uh, Lux or Lux encryption. Yep, yep. Now, my only thing, though, is um, from what they see, from what they show, that's not the for the Lux, so uh, there's a couple other steps I have to do. Once I mount the partitions, once I like uh, do open Lux and, and mount it to the mount drive, and then like dev and then sys and something, there's another partition as well that I mount. Um, the only issue is when I try to do grub install, it says that user bin cannot be found. 
So I was hopefully, you know, I was hoping that you may know what the issue could be. I tried using uh, Reddit and a couple other sites as well to figure out why it says that user bin isn't there, and that's why I can't install a uh, use Grub install. Did you use? Uh, did you use when when you were setting up Lux? Did you do it by hand, or did you? Was it an option in the installer? Um, so first, I did it where um, I, I I didn't do the full customization myself. Already made a couple of partitions, and then I had this edited. The only thing I edited was I had added a swap partition to it, and I had all the partitions. I had the home partition separated from the rest of the, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like the root and, and the other directories and stuff like that. So that was the only thing that I did. That didn't work. So I tried just, I, I'm trying to stick with LVM and Lux encryption just because right. I always carry my laptop. I'm always worried if I lose it, I don't want people to have access to the hard drive. You should be. Um. So, yeah, so I tried doing that, and it didn't necessarily, so that didn't work. And I tried doing it where it had still LVM and Lux, but I had basically set it up where it would do everything itself. Skips, it said, you sure don't want to add swap? I skipped that part. I'm like, all right, let me just try to have it handle all itself, everything on one partition. So I have home, root, everything like that, boot. Um, uh, Not on one partition, but on the, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to word it, but... So basically, I had to, I tried to have the installer handle that by itself without me editing any of the partitions that were that were there. That also didn't work, and I literally installed it like fifteen times in one night. I'm trying wow. to figure out like what the issue was. Well, yeah. okay, all right. Well, let, let's start with this. So, so here here's what I would do because you you've got a lot of stuff going on, my friend. Uh, so here's what I would start. So the, <laughs> to to start, the first thing we want to do is understand what the process is. So when the BIOS or, or or UEFI interface loads, the first thing it does. It looks for something bootable. Obviously, that can't be encrypted by nature. So you have a slash boot, and that isn't encrypted. Now, we know that's working because you're getting to a grub screen, yes? No, not at all. Okay, so that's the first thing. Okay, so that's the first thing we have to to troubleshoot. If you're not getting even to, if grub itself isn't even loading, then we have then that limits severe. So we're not even too lux yet because if you've encrypted your boot partition, there's zero percent chance you're going to get the machine to 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 boot. You can't encrypt the boot partition because the BIOS has no idea how to decrypt it. So that's step one to fix. Mm -hmm. We've got to figure that out. What and maybe that fixes your issue altogether. On the off chance it doesn't, I'll walk you through the rest of the process. So. First, we check and make sure that the BIOS can access the boot partition. It's not encrypted, and and that part is working. Um, once you've verified that, that that is working, we troubleshoot that part. Now we should get to a grub screen. We get to a grub screen. The okay. next thing we want to do is we want to make sure that we can actually decrypt the device. And so, like you said, crypt setup, uh, you know, space uh, lux open, and then slash dev slash sda, whatever it is. Um, and that will mm-hmm. unlock or, or decrypt the drive. And then the next thing we want to do is we want to mount the the um, the LVM volume, so pseudo LV scan, and that will give us a list mm-hmm. of all of the volume groups that are there. And then you'll take the associated mm-hmm. volume group, pseudo mounts, you know, and slash DV slash whatever VG blah blah blah, and then the mount point. Yeah. So you'll you'll get that done. After you have that, after we've mounted, we've decrypted, we've mounted the drive, now you can do something like grub-install, and that will go through, and, and we, can, we can start to try to fix or repair grub if it's not booting on its own. But if you're not even getting to the grub, uh, uh, the grub 
prompt, then you don't. Then you have a bigger problem. Then you're not even dealing with encryption at that point. You're dealing with a a problem with your bootloader. The other thing you could do as a stopgap measure, if you get to a point where it's just not working and you just need a working solution, so that what I just defined, that's the right way to go about troubleshooting. The incorrect way to go about troubleshooting, but will probably save you a bunch of time. Just make a small partition and install. A, a a more well-known operating system like Ubuntu or whatever, and let mm-hmm. that operating system handle taking care of installing Grub and, and stuff like that. And you'll have a you're, you'll have a tiny little partition. It again, I hesitate to say that on the air because there's going to be some people slapping their foreheads, going, "That's not an answer," and it's not. It's really not an answer. <laughs> However, it's one of those things that it will work, right? It, as long as you have, okay. even if if all you've done is set up the Lux correctly. On your on the installation you actually want to use, if you had a small little utility partition and it booted a well known operating system where, excuse me, where they are doing testing and and they have all sorts of automated scripts and stuff to handle detecting Lux and setting all that all up, um, that will probably simplify your life tremendously. So I, I might give that a shot too yeah. if you run out of all the other proper troubleshooting methods. Okay. Okay. Cool. That actually sounds like a pretty good idea. I actually didn't think about that. I had one more question. Yeah. Uh, if you have the time, I know I do. Be somebody else in the line. No, That's go for it. Um. So I am trying to get into the network field, cybersecurity field. I'm trying to Mr. Robot kind of change the game for me, so I'm <laughs> trying to be more in the cybersecurity field. So I have a Cisco firewall. I have a, I think it's Netgear and NetGate. It's uh, for PFSense. Yeah, so NetGate. I have all yep. These devices that I want to be able to set up. Mm-hmm. That's what it was, NetGate. So I do want to set this up into my home network, and I was planning on doing that, but uh, we ended up switching companies. Before I had Optimum, now I have Altice, which is like a, I guess like a derivative of Optimum. Okay. So, or like you know, like a, a smaller company of of Optimum. Yeah, so gotcha. The only issue is is that it's a three in one box. I have the cable box, the modem, and a router, all in one. Mm. I wanted to know uh, would it be possible to even attach all these things? Because I also have like an access point as well that I kind of want to set up. Mm-hmm. I was talking to my dad, who's in the field. He was saying that that may be an issue because. Um, I was hoping that if it was separated where I have a modem and a router, I could just unplug the router, plug my own, you know, have the firewall set up, then have the, the access point set up and do all that. Now, would that be a challenge? Should I just give up on trying to do that no. for, what's, for what I have? No, you should not give up. What you should do is inside of the, you're right, that combination device is a router, it's a modem, it's a router, it's a switch usually, and it's also an access point. So there's actually four devices inside of what everybody calls the router or the modem. And just like when we refer to a spork, is it a really good, is it a, you know, is it a good spoon? Not really. Is it a good fork? Uh, not particularly, <laughs> but hey, it's a fork and a spoon all in one, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing, right? It's not a particularly great access point. It's not a particularly powerful router. It's not a terribly great switch, and it's not a mm-hmm. terribly great cable modem. Actually, the cable modem's pretty okay. Inside of all of those devices, though, there's almost always a device no or a, a configuration setting known as bridge mode. And what bridge mode does is it disables all of the routing and firewall functionality, and it's probably going to give you a bazillion scary messages. Oh, don't do this. Your internet will break. Your network... Just ignore it. Keep clicking through and, and enable bridge mode, and that will turn all of the all of the ports on the back of the router switch modem access point combo into just a switch connected to a modem. And what you're able to do at that point then is plug that into your PFSense box and manage it through PFSense. We do it all the time. Um, those those uh, those combination devices are becoming more and more ubiquitous, and they're all over the place. So 
That's what I would do. But you certainly don't need to give up. And if that, on the off chance it doesn't have a bridge mode, and I've yet to see one that doesn't in the last five years, but on the off chance it doesn't, ask your cable provider what modems they support. They're probably going to give you, uh, they're, they're going to say one of two things. Either here's the list of MAC addresses we will authorize on our network, and so here are the brands you have to buy. Uh, or they'll say, uh, we support any Doxus 3 modem. And then you can just bo- go buy a Doxus 3 modem, and you're back in the game. I see. So would that affect the um, cable uh, part of, like, aspect of that? Because the thing is, no. so this box gives off, okay, because there's other boxes that wirelessly are connected to this. I want to make sure it doesn't affect any cable, uh, like any, any like, you know, watching TV. I don't want that mm. to affect that in any type of way. Well, the cable TV itself is going to, I mean, the telcos have they provide a number of different services through a single wire right and so when that wire comes into your house sometimes they'll have a they'll have a um they'll have a voip modem uh in there they'll it's it's known as an ata and essentially what it does is it takes a voip line and turns it into a traditional analog line and so you'll see cable providers do that um, but the, the 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 cable modem goes to a, uh, a CMTS or a cable modem termination system. That's what's on the other end of your cable modem, and that's essentially just a very long network run. And so, typically, what cable what what, uh, what cable providers do if they're providing more than one service, if they're an integrated service provider, they will have cable TV, phone, and internet all coming in through a single wire. But there are the the cable modem itself talks to the CMTS, so that's one link. And then you've got the cable okay. the cable devices which tune your cable TV, and those talk to a separate device. They don't talk to the CMTS on the other okay. side. And then you have you know the phone system which is talking essentially to a SIP server, uh, which is provide which is and then the ATA converts SIP to analog and all that other junk. But the the point is okay. that if if you swap out the router or make any configuration changes on the router or the switch, unless you have there are some companies that are doing things like IPTV. In those circumstances, I could see how it might break something. However, it's going to if it's communicating wirelessly, undoubtedly it's going through your access point, and so you'll be able to set your new network up with the new uh, network ID. In fact, I have a friend that owns a wireless ISP, and that's what they do. They the, all of their TVs have little boxes. They connect Wi-Fi back to the thing, and it, it brings TV in over. Yeah. Over the internet, and that's that's kind of how they do ISP. it. So if it's a smaller ISP, they'll do that. But any large ISP is is running coax in, or actually these days they're running fibers to a micronode that sits outside the house, and then the micronode, the last like twenty five feet or whatever, is a copper run into the cable modem. Mm-hmm. Does that help you? Stuff. Yeah. Okay. One very small question, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that's where I'm done. So now for the live TV shows, can uh, live radio shows, um, I guess I'm listening to this, mm-hmm. um, is that only through your website? I'm assuming I can't listen to that live through Apple Podcasts, or can I? Um, I don't like, know. I, 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 tell, I tell you what, here's the thing. I am never opposed to a new way for people to listen to, to consume content. So I will look into it and see if there is a if there is another way to do it. The, the, the only ways at the moment to listen to the show, of course you can do it at AskNoahShow.com. The other thing you can do is you can go to over to KEQQRadio.com and it's streamed there, of course, when we're live. The other thing you can do is because KEQQ Radio is a an affiliate radio station, um, we are on TuneIn. So you can download the TuneIn app and you can pull up KEQQ and listen to uh, the Ask Noah Show on the TuneIn app. Or you can tell your Amazon uh, lady in a tube uh, to play KEQQ, and she'll pull up 
uh, the the if you at least if you're again live, uh, you'll be able to listen to the show there. So there's we have a bunch of different ways for you to to get to the show. I see. Um, but I I will look okay. and see if there is a way to do it live over iTunes or Google Play or any of those things. I will look into it and we will have it up as soon as possible. Okay, sounds good. Um, take care, and I love the great work that you do. Hey, I really appreciate the call. Thanks for joining us tonight. 855-450-NOAH. That's one 855 The email live at asknoahshow.com. If you haven't heard, there is a new show on the Destination Linux Network. It's called DLN Extend, and the whole idea behind the show is to bring people who have who follow the shows, who listen to the shows, who engage with the shows, and bring them on to talk about what they frankly what they disagree with myself and the other DLN hosts on and so uh, one of those people is cubicle nate and he joins us every week on sundays for destination linux if you're not joining us then you're missing out um so you want to check out that show on sundays and destiny and uh excuse me cubicle nate joins us on the ask noah show tonight to uh to discuss a couple of things welcome into the program sir paging cubicle nate i see him there now, I don't see him there. All right. We'll come back to Cubicle Nate. 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Uh, so, Unify had a, had a blunder this week. This was, this was ridiculous. So, Unify uh, updated their firmware, and they updated the firmware to basically spy on people. Um, they changed their network behavior uh so that all of these devices that are adopted in the latest firmware call home and they send a number of different pieces of information back to Unify. Now you might remember this is the second time in a year that Unify Unify has uh, irked me off. And um, the first time was with Unify Protect and they limited the number of cameras that you could use because they weren't going to let you run the Unify uh, software on proper enterprise hardware. And they said, well, we built this new thing and it's really good. Of course, it didn't have redundant power supplies. It didn't have redundant network interfaces. It didn't have IPMI. It didn't have ZFS storage pools. But other than that, it was a pretty cool device. And so I was upset and a couple other people were upset. And Unify's answer was basically, hey, we still have the old cameras. If you'd like to use those, we're going to continue to support them. And I have continued to use those cameras. And we've continued to spin that controller up on on our own servers and use it that way. And the thing that is super frustrating to me was after that blunder, Unify didn't get the message at how fast people seem to notice strange things that occur on their network. It's almost like these people are the kind of people that are tech enthusiasts, network engineers, maybe do this for a career and kind of pay attention to those kinds of things. I don't know. But this is the second time they screwed this up. They included this phone home feature in all of their devices in their new firmware. Now, Ubiquity told customers that all of the information is being handled, and I use my air finger quotes here, securely and has been cleared to comply with GDPR, Europe's data privacy rules. Okay, so let's stop right there. First of all, there is no such thing as anonymous data. There is no such thing as anonymous data. One more time for those of you in the back, there's no such thing as anonymous data. Data by definition is a collection of identifiable information. If it wasn't an, if it wasn't identifiable as unique, it's not use it's not useful. It's not useful for uh for us being able to do analytics. It may be less identifiable than a full name, social security number, address, all of that stuff, but it's not truly anonymous. Now, this quote-unquote feature transmits all of the device metrics, and Unify refused to answer 
refused to answer. I've been to three different form uh, forms entirely, not just form posts, but forms trying to get an answer from uh, Unify on exactly what is being transmitted. They won't answer it. So the Internet has done some sleuthing. And here's what they came up with. It transmits the time and date of all connected devices, the first eight of the MAC address and the transfer data amount and speed. Now, all devices with current firmware are going to do this. So I and a bunch of other people who use Unify who found this to be profoundly uh, infuriating said, fine, then your all of those Unify devices, all of your little spy devices are going to go into a management VLAN that don't have any access to the Internet and we will just pass the traffic from the clients that are connected. That, you know, So the, let's say that the access point might have an address of 10.10.10.1 and the 10 network goes nowhere. But the access point is connected to a network, maybe like, let's say, 172.16.0.0, and that network has access to the Internet. So any clients connecting to an access point will be able to go out to the Internet, but the access point itself can't talk out to the Internet. Well, that seemed like a great solution until until it came to light that if you – well, there's a couple different problems. If So first of all, if you block the access points – and you still have a, a, the unified security gateway, the USG. The USG is kind enough to go, oh, you can't send your unified, your, all your data back home? No problem, buddy. I'll go ahead and collect it and forward it on. So the USG forwards all the data on. And, of course, you can't stop the USG from forwarding data on because if you block the USG from accessing the Internet, you've taken your network offline. Um, the other problem is if you actually go about the process of dropping network crash or uh, network data from Excuse me. If you go about the process of blocking Internet access from the access points and other uh, subsequent devices, there is a memory leak. And what the memory leak does is it will continue to retry every 25 seconds and it just keeps eating up memory and failure until the device uh, just decides to go into degraded performance and then it will reboot itself. Well, that's not really helpful either. And um, Unify has been has just they have totally screwed this up. In every possible way. So, Unify, ha- they've been unclear on exactly what information is being transmitted. So, there's screw-up number one. Screw-up number two is they didn't post a note in the change log about this stupid feature that they're calling a feature I'm calling spyware. Third of all, they made it mandatory. There's no opt-out option. There's no turn-it-off. And it should be an opt-in. Hey, do you want to send a bunch of private network data to unify for the purpose of quote unquote troubleshooting, that should be an option that we have. It's not. And then they went back and deleted their post on their bulletin board system. And that was the moment where I went, okay, this is not intent. This is not an unintentional mistake. This is not an accident. They're intentionally doing this. They are trying to get after people. And so they released a statement and they said, we have started to gather crashes and other critical events strictly for the purpose of improving our products. Any data collected is completely anonymized, GP, uh, GDPR compliant, transmitted using end-to-end encryption, and encrypted at risk. There is no on-off switch, but there's also no penalties for blocking internet access to the device, dropping traffic to this host, and or blocking it via DNS. Okay, so first of all, there is some there are some downsides, although I'll get to it in a second. They have fixed that in a later firmware update about the memory leak. Second of all, um, as far as the data being encrypted end to end, if it truly is anonymized, why wouldn't they just publish this stuff? In fact, why can't I see the crash reports on the device that I purchased on my own network? Why does Unify get those reports and I can't even look at them? So if it really is anonymized, 
publish the stuff. Just put it out on the internet, right? It's anonymized. There's no customer data to leak, right? This is a problem. This is this is how you know there's something there. The fact that they, they, they say, oh, it's anonymized, and then they say, well, but it's encrypted. and eh, The whole thing just drives me nuts. And uh, so after a massive blowback by the community, they responded and said, if there are any questions related to this, I may suggest taking a look at our EULA, our Terms of Service and Privacy Apology, which are readily available on our website. So the TLDR is, screw you, we can do it via our EULA, and you agreed to that. And then he goes on to say, and this is an important part, he says, the memory leak that you referenced was a bug specific to 4.0.6, which was fixed as of 4.0.61. Hopes this helps, hopes, hope this helps clarify. Cheers, Mike. And... um so they have since published yet another firmware update, and in the in the latest one now as of today, there is an option to disable this feature, but you have to do it from the CLI, and you have to go edit a config file, and they say that it's going to come to the, the graphic interface um, at a later time. So this is strike two, Unify. Screw up again, and we're going to have words. I... I, I did some basic looking. I spent a couple of hours this week trying to look at what else is out there, and here's kind of what I came down with is... Yes, this is crappy. Yes, this is terrible. But do you have any guarantees that, like, devices that phone home are so prevalent? Do you have any guarantees that any other company isn't working on it? The fact that there are all of these tech enthusiasts that are using these devices, the fact that they are so involved on the forums just kind of tends to bring issues to light faster and more viciously. I'm not necessarily convinced that Unify is doing anything that Ruckus isn't doing. I looked at, again, I looked at some of their competitors, and all of them make references to cloud-connected data. There's all sorts of references to things that happen on the cloud and outside of the network. So I don't know that Unify is specific to this, and they did roll it back pretty fast after they saw the uplash, or the, uh, the backlash. But come on, guys. You cannot be sending information out of people's private networks onto the internet, onto your servers without their consent. Not cool, Unify. Not cool. All right, let's try this again. Cubicle Nate, are you with us? I am. Can you hear me this time? I can. Welcome into the program, sir. Oh, man, thank you. I love this program. Yeah. I'm so glad I'm here. Uh, me too. I'm glad that you're taking the time to be here. So you and I, uh, we want to have a conversation about Microsoft. And you, being a former Windows, a former Windows hater, uh, you have some interesting perspectives that maybe I don't have. And so uh, we thought we'd bring you on the show and uh, and we'd chat about them. So I guess kind of give me the rundown. What are What are you experiencing uh, as it relates to Windows and uh, and and Microsoft's love for Linux? Well, no, I'm going to say I still am not a Windows lover. I don't, I don't love, I don't heart Windows. Just to <laughs> be clear, okay? I, I, I find it a, a frustrating user experience. However, I will say that uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of ramping up my, uh, my programming, like learning programming and whatnot. And mm -hmm. so I installed VS Code or Visual Studio Code, and in my OpenSUSE tumbleweed machine, and Microsoft made it so easy to keep updated. They, they have all the commands right there for. This is what you need to do to add the repo and, and everything else. And, and I was pretty impressed by that. I know I'm, I'm a little bit, I feel like I'm, I've, I've uh, lost a little respect for myself because I do see a Microsoft repository in my Linux machine. I, I do realize that does seem kind of, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a part of me that does kind of, that does hurt a little bit. However, mm -hmm. you know, looking at, looking at this, this um, you know, Microsoft is a big ship and they're, and they're steering it in a different direction, it seems like. And that takes a while. And I'm, and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt right now. I'm cautiously optimistic, let's say. 
but, but things, I'm, I'm things are working well. For, things are working well. For, so, so I guess just give this to me. If you're go, if 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 somebody was co- going into software development today, point blank, cubicle Nate, are the software tools that Microsoft is making that run on Linux are they good tools? Yeah. Yes, are they, they better are. than are uh, they are they better absolutely. are they better or do they offer any advantages that native tools on Linux didn't have before? Is are they adding a net positive? Are they having a net positive influence on the Linux ecosystem? Now I'm going to have to say this from my limited experience. So I I work with other people at my employer and that are running Linux in the in the workplace, working on Linux machines. In fact, you can find a Pop OS or an Ubuntu machine and. Well, you'll, you'll find my OpenSUSE machine. And to kind of keep us all uh, on the same sheet of music, as it were, uh, they're, they're all running uh, Visual Studio Code because it integrates so well into the other systems that this corporation has. So uh, will the, would the open source alternatives work just as well? I, I really don't know. I, I can't say for sure. But what I can say is it's making coding for these you know appliances of the future, let's call it, a lot easier uh, uh, to for everyone to be on the same. Talk to me about some of the additional situations of open source products that that Microsoft has has kind of involved themselves in. Does that make any sense? I'm sorry. Uh, did uh, we have a communication failure there? What was the last thing you said? I I think I think so. I think we did. I I um in the um. Uh, to keep everybody kind of on the same on the same sheet of music, uh-huh. they are uh, they, everyone runs Visual Studio Code, whether they're Windows uh, on the Windows okay. machines or on the Linux machines. So everyone can use the same set of tools, you know, regardless of whatever their platform is that they're working on. So it, it's making for a lot easier time developing these new appliances of the future, as it were. Now, excuse my ignorance. When it comes to Visual Studio Code, it, 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 are these things that can? Is it a tool that can only be used to develop Windows software, or are you able to develop Linux software using Visual Studio Code? I can develop whatever software I want. Really? So this is. That's, I mean, so this is. So this is. This is a tool that 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 is useful for for Linux. Now, now tell me about this. Um, what do you think of? Uh, what do you think of additional situations of of open source products? Talk to me about so some, like the Edge browser. Yeah, Edge browser, PowerShell, Windows calculator, Windows Live Writer, all those things. Now, I don't use those really. Uh, I, uh, the, the .NET Core libraries. <clears throat> I'm going to say that that probably makes for a lot a lot easier time of getting more software to run natively in Linux. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you agree to that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I think that that's a net positive for us. How, how does this relate to uh, how does this relate to getting people on the Linux desktop? Uh, this seems highly advantageous if you're already a Linux user and you get hired by a place that wants to to use this given toolset. Now that toolset is available to you. Do you think there's anybody out there that's going to say, okay, Linux is a better development machine than Microsoft Windows is now that these tools are available here? So people might actually start coming from a Windows, a working Windows development environment, over to over to Linux land. Do you see that happening? Now, I can only speak again from my, my own personal uh, view of the of the world from where I, where I work. Sure. But three, four years ago, there weren't any Linux machines in the advanced design area or advanced development area. It was all Windows machines. Now, now you're seeing Linux machines pop up. Now you're seeing 
no, this is the right tool for the job here is this this machine so we can do the machine learning necessary to to do all these whiz bang you know products. Mm-hmm. So there now it's so really Linux is becoming the tool to use, not just a tool to use. Have you, in your experience, have you seen people that have were Linux users first and then they are let's say uh, developer seconds like are, are these are they are they are they people that were using Linux at home and then they said oh now I can finally bring my Linux box into work or I can finally flash my my work box with Linux or is it more you've got people now that are looking over at the their colleagues and friends that are using Linux and going hey maybe I should install that and give that a shot do you have any insight into that I think what it is is uh, a lot of these people are you know they're they're nerds like me and they're just they're they're technologists they like the technology they they like to play and I think they're just finding it as the better tool. Some of them I've learned it in college. Some of them you know are uh, there's there's a guy that he he used to take care of all the all the lab functions and he he built a lot of the stuff on Raspberry Pis as a for for uh, well amazingly Raspberry Pis actually for for commercial and almost industrial. Uh, uh, Data acquisition systems, mm-hmm. but because it just it just did it better than the the Windows alternatives, they just replaced it. Like, well, this will just work better. It'll be cheaper, and we can do this, and it'll work for now until we find a better solution. And and I think that's just kind of how they're looking at it. What is the most economical solution to get us from point A to point B? And right now, in in the uh, manufacturing, industrial, the the, uh, the engineering spaces, Linux is kind of moving in there a little bit by bit, and you know, to, to circle back, Microsoft is, in a way, having a hand in it, which is rather ironic. That's so awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. It's nice to hear for, firsthand knowledge from people out in the field that are that are seeing some of this stuff and going, hey, you know what? I, you guys can sit behind a microphone and talk all day long about whether Microsoft is doing a good thing or a bad thing. But what I'm seeing down here at Ground Zero is that it's a net positive to people on the Linux desktop. So I, I thank you for that, and I thank you for bringing it to the attention of both myself and everybody who listens to the show. Tell me about Deal and Extend. We haven't had a chance really to talk about it on this program. Um, that's your new show. T- talk to me about it. Well, myself, who's been a you know, long-time fan of, well, of you, I've followed you around for quite a while, and Destination Linux for a few years now. Um, we just kind of hung out and just kind of kept hanging out and interacting with you guys, and, and myself and Eric Adams... Uh, we, you know, we're both nerds that love Linux, and we uh, uh, got uh, essentially approached by um, Mr. Michael Tunnell, who who said, "Hey, do you are you interested in doing something with us?" And we said, "Yeah." Said we uh, we don't we often don't agree with you on things, and it, it'd be nice to <laughs> basically have a, have a rebuttal. <laughs> well, I think so, that's awesome. Yeah, so we're kind of trying to be like a uh, another another voice. Because yeah, uh, frankly, you know, you you are you have you're very entrenched in in your ways, and Michael and his. Uh, although I often say Michael's Michael's never wrong, but uh, but I know that's not true. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then you know Ryan Dosky, he has uh, other views, and as far as like you know, especially about security and and certain things like that and hardware. And uh, so like you know, for me and and Eric, we're a little more on the pragmatist side of things. Like, how do we at at our at our levels, you know, myself being in engineering and uh, and Eric being in the uh, like information systems, web services type space. You know, how do we view security, and how do we implement those those same or similar security practices or or whatever? And and so we don't necessarily always agree. You know, with with maybe maybe your way might be better, but. You know, I don't know that I can implement your way, or I don't know that I agree with 
you know how how you do it sure. basically sure That's just an example no there's and so know, it's it's uh it's fun to uh to basically talk to eric and and uh about you guys <laughs> there's always more than one way to skin a cat right there's always one more more than one way to crack a nut and there's rarely one way that is drastically superior than the other right um we're all smart people we all have different ways of going about doing things and i think what's interesting is as a host of a show i find it to be incredibly enlightening and challenging that there are people out there that are going to challenge what we say and are going to to, to think with it critically, do it in a respectful manner, in a constructive manner, um, but challenge things nonetheless. And I love that. And I love the concept of DLN Extend. I love the raw nature of DLN Extend. And I love the fact that the Destination Linux Network is so open to the community and functions very much, if you think about it, like an open source project, right? There is no there is no gatekeeper. Yeah. Uh, with with destination Linux network, it's you know the 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 most active best voices rise to the top, and those are the people that are heard. And there is no there is no barrier to entry. There is no gatekeeper. I like that. I like that model. I like that approach. I think if we really believe in what we preach about open source software, then we should be willing to apply that model to um, open source media. And so that's what's being done. And I you know I'm excited to be a part of that. And I'm glad that you were you know are willing to take the time and to do that as well. And I think the the other good part about it is too, is often you'll find on the uh, on the World Wide Web, when people have dissenting opinions, it's usually not in a very respectful way. Mm-hmm. And I I personally do not care for that at all. So right. I and and you know Eric and myself, we, we would like to set the example of what it's like to have with a dissenting opinion in right. a respectful way. Right. This well, is I- how you know this is another way to look at it. Uh, the classical model of of discuss, discussing ideas is, is kind of what we're doing. Perfect example of that is right in the chat room. Your boss, Das Geek, says as long as he as long as you continue to agree with him, the show is going to continue. That's a very respectful way right, to yeah. to point out that he's going to just take <laughs> your voice away if uh, if you don't agree with everything he says. That's a nice, respectful, gentle thing to say. I, I think that kind of right, exactly. I, th- I think we should foster that. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I do appreciate that. You know, Ryan is. I would never call him a bulldog, right? Yeah. No, no, of course not. He's the, he's the kindest soul. I mean, here's the thing. You have to understand, right? He's right. So there's that. But if people want to catch Deal and Extend, how can they get to the show? Google Nate? Well, sorry. Uh, wrong button again. I, uh, <laughs> no, I, don't even, I don't even know my own computer. Uh, well, it's uh, DL, DLNExtend.com. You can get it there. If, you know, and all the avenues like you know, Google Play, iTunes, and there's actually an entire list of things I've never heard of that 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 Michael knows and has uh, put the uh, podcast feeds into. Pretty much anywhere your podcasts are, you can find it. And and if you can't find it, uh, send Michael a message because he didn't do it right. That's that's what I'll. And what I'll we tell you. love to pick on Michael any opportunity that we get because he's kind of our favorite. Uh, he's our favorite. You know. I don't know, dog to kick in the corner or something like that. E- any of the destination uh, Linux network or destination Linux network shows can be found at destination Linux dot network. And so if you head over there, all of the resources, including all the community resources. And I mean, he, there are a ton, telegram, mumble, steam, discord, discourse. I mean, you name it, it's there. Head over to destination Linux dot network and you can check all of those out as well as if you just click on the shows link, guess what's right there. Deal and extend, and uh, they got some new uh, tons and tons and tons of cool stuff. And uh, you guys are doing the show weekly, is that right? Correct. We do it weekly. We try and record it by the end of the week after all the other shows have been published, and then Eric and I will talk about it. We'll put some notes together, and then we'll just start chatting, pretty much, and then cut it up and spit it out, pretty much. That's awesome. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. We'll get you back on the program soon. 
Thank you very much. That is Cubicle Nate. He joins us this hour on the Ask Noah Show, and we'll have him back to continue to discuss and question my perfect views on everything. Of course, if you want more information, there's always a ton of stories that we just don't get to. We just don't have the time to dig through all the stuff that I'd want to cover in a given week. And all of those are available to you on the podcast site. You can go to podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find all of the articles and references that I use to, com- to, to compose the show, as well as anything that comes about while I'm doing the show, and as well as all the stuff that we didn't have time to get to after the show. If you want more content, I invite you to go over to asknoahshow.com. There you'll find links to all sorts of other resources such as our YouTube channel, Mind Drip Media. There's tutorials, there's reviews, all sorts of stuff. So make sure to check that out. And don't forget to check out Linux Delta, our distro review site. Uh, more information and more tools and features are coming to that as well. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com. We'll see you next week.